I'd like to take a minute of your time to let you know what you can do to help Recovery Radio continue its mission as a premier provider of free ongoing support to recovering people worldwide. Recently, our expenses have skyrocketed. The increase is powered by our increasing bandwidth and storage needs caused by the growing popularity of our programs. This is actually a good problem to have as it shows that we are filling a need as we continue our mission to serve the recovery community. However, even good problems are problems that need resolutions and this is where you come in. Recovery Radio has started a fundraiser to help defray our additional costs. Please surf on over to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. Give whatever amount you can and rest assured your donation will be used to keep Recovery Radio on air and on mission. Please become part of the solution and help us support the recovery community. Now it's time to introduce the speaker. Um, I've heard this speaker before. He has a very awesome message. Um, I hope today you can get out of what I got out of it. Um, I'd like to introduce Cameron F. I want you to picture a hopeless alcoholic that's stuck in a hole so deep that this poor suffering man can't get out of it. And as he's crying out for help, a businessman is strolling by and he hears the alcoholic and he, he decides he has a solution for him. And he says, here, take this ladder and climb out of this hole. And the alcoholic thanked him for the ladder, but instead of climbing out of the hole, he traded it in for a bottle and went out on another bender and then realized when he came to that he was still in his hole. Time passes and a, a doctor is strolling by and here's the alcoholic crying out for help. And the doctor says, here, I have a solution for you. Take this prescription. I believe it was for medical marijuana. And he took the prescription. He took the marijuana and it alleviated his pain for a while. But then the prescription ran out. The marijuana ran out. And he went back to his first love, which was the booze, and realized he was still in the hole. A preacher strolls by. And the preacher hears the alcoholic crying out for help. And the preacher says, here, I have a solution for you. Take this Bible and we'll pray together. And so the preacher kneeled with the alcoholic and they prayed for a while. And then the preacher had to go and he said to the alcoholic, keep the Bible. The alcoholic realized he was still in his hole. Finally, a counselor from the treatment center comes strolling by. And he hears the alcoholic crying out for help. And he says to the alcoholic, here, how would you find yourself in that hole? Why don't you share with me your feelings and issues about living in the hole? Was it your mother and father's fault? What's life like in the hole? And after about an hour of hearing the alcoholic share about his life in the hole, the counselor says, i got to go, but I'll be back next week. <laughs> Are you stuck in a hole you can't get out of, or do you know someone who's stuck in a hole they can't get out of? My name's Cameron, and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I like to declare myself a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because... As a member, what I'm really declaring is that I'm abstinent from alcohol. Now, that's an odd thing to declare for an alcoholic. Because everything in my 26 years of experience tells me I will drink again. 
as right as the sun's going to rise tomorrow, I will drink again, because that's what I like to do. I like drinking. I like drinking a lot. It's, it was my solution for many, many years. Yet here I am, a, a member of this fellowship, and for many, many years I've been able to practice abstinence. You know, how is that possible? And it was by working the 12 steps, this very simple program that we have, that I was able to arrest this progressive illness and recover from what seemed a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I came into these rooms uh, many years ago, and I remember sitting, I spent the first months just sitting in the rooms. I collected my, my you know, newcomer chip. I got my 30-day chip. I got my 60-day, six-month. And after about eight months, I was beginning to realize that I wasn't getting what I was hearing. You know, I kept hearing, keep coming back, wait for the miracle to happen. And, and it wasn't happening. And I thought if I had to sit through one more one, two, three discussion and listen to the minutiae of people puking out their bad day, I didn't want this as a solution. This didn't, this to me didn't seem like a real way out. And I was ready to go back out. And I was fortunate enough, I met a man who approached me who cared more about me than I did myself. And he said, Cameron, are you looking for a real way out? I said, yes, I am. And he says, well, what are you willing to do? And uh, I said, I'd be willing to do anything. I don't want to live this way anymore. And then he asked me, he says, do you think you're beyond human aid? Which I thought was a really odd question to ask. Am I beyond human aid? Well, what do you mean by that? And um, we started talking about the different ways that I tried to quit. Now, instead of taking me to another meeting, this man... We bought a big book, and we went to a coffee shop, and we started reading the big book together. And when we came to certain instructions in the book, we took the instruction together. He didn't tell me what to do. He actually took the journey with me. And he explained to me, he says, back in 1939, there was this original 100 group of alcoholics of of a hopeless variety who had all found a way out of their, their predicament. And they thought their solution was so important that they wrote it down like a recipe, and that's called our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he explained to me that this was a recipe for recovery, that if I followed the instructions exactly as they're outlined in the book, I could recover from this hopeless state of being. And so we we started taking this journey together. And, you know, one of my favorite passages in the big book where I identify with the alcoholic, is in the doctor's opinion. And it says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And I remember him saying, do you like what alcohol does for you, Cameron? I said, I love what alcohol does for me. But then it goes on to say, and even though they admit it is injurious, and he says, is, is, the, is the booze killing you? And I had just been uh, diagnosed with liver disease that year, and I says, yes, it is. But then it goes on to say, but he can't differentiate the true from the false. And he said, Cameron, what that means is you're a liar. Your mind loves the lie to you. It loves to come up with a reason or an excuse or a justification of why it's okay for you to drink again. You know, that had been my experience. You know, no matter how much I really wanted to stop, I would come up for another reason why it was okay to have another drink. It goes on to say that we're restless, irritable, bored, discontented. I like to add bored, paranoid, uh, anxious, depressed. And he explained that these are 
the symptoms that always precede the relapse and that nobody likes to live that way. I don't like being bored. I don't like being depressed. I don't like being anxious or, or irritable. And my solution is to drink. And that's what the book explains so clearly, that unless I can again experience that sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once. And that's what I loved about bourbon. It, it got me in touch with its power at once. No matter how I was experiencing my life, when I drank bourbon, it all went away. It was my power. It was my solution. I always remember every time I relapsed, and I put those first three shots into me, that this warm and fuzzy glow would come over me and it was like an old friend returning home. And I thought, where have you been? Why did I ever quit in the first place? This is exactly the way I like to feel. Now, my wife, who's, who's, uh, I married Mary Tyler Moore. She's pure as the driven snow. Very honest. Does everything, you know, as she's supposed to do. She's a really good woman. And she does not understand what it means to be one of us. In fact, she has a drink maybe once or twice in a year. And when she has a drink, she gets that kind of warm and fuzzy glow, too, that she gets from a drink. But shortly thereafter, she gets nausea and she gets sleepy and she doesn't like it and she stops. I remember the first drink I had was at college. And it was long before I was an alcoholic. And I remember I ordered a rum and coke. And I remember the feeling that came over me, and it brought out a Cameron that I really liked to experience. And I liked it so much, I remember having, I think I had like 20 rum and cokes that night. I was so drunk, I was so sick. I remember crawling back to the dorm, and the bed spins and swearing to God, never again, never again, this is horrible, and that horrible hangover in the morning. But where was I two days later? I'm back in pub night, slinging back the rum and cokes, because I liked the effect. But after a while, it ceased being that luxury, that recreation, and all of a sudden there was a point, I don't know when it occurred, but where alcohol took on a primary concern in my life. And I needed it. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I needed it. It was my solution that I needed at an all, all the time. And it started to take on a very familiar pattern of that when I would drink, I would go out on these sprees. Or I got no control. I could never control it. Because when I start drinking, I like to drink. I, like, I never get that mechanism that says, okay, you've had enough. And so that spree takes its course where I got no control. And then eventually I hit a point where I go, i got to stop. I can't go on like this. And the remorse and the horror and the hopelessness is so unbearable. And then I make that firm resolution not to do it again. And you've all made that firm resolution never again. Right, And if you hooked up a lie detector test to any alcoholic who's in that moment where they say, I will never drink again, I guarantee you it would register truthful. Yet what's our experience? We always find some lie, some justification, some reason for picking up that first drink and starting that whole terrible cycle over again. I call it the wheel of misfortune. Spree, followed by the remorse, followed by the mental twist or the blank spot, followed by the first drink, then the craving, and around and around we go. And we've all been around that wheel many times. And, uh, and unless we get off it, you know, death and insanity is our, our final doorstep. So he took me through this passage, and, and we really identified with one another in terms of that pattern of alcoholism. And all alcoholics experience that pattern. We then read a passage 
that defined what a real alcoholic looks like? And I thought that was an odd question. I thought by coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a real alcoholic. And, and he, he wanted to allow myself to diagnose really where I was at in this progressive illness. And he read this passage that said, Moderate drinkers, given sufficient reason... He says, do you got a sufficient reason for giving it up, Cameron? I says, yes. He says, can take it or leave it alone. He says, this is you. I said, well, I could always take it, but I could never leave it alone. So we were pretty, pretty clear that I wasn't a moderate drinker. Then he came to the hard drinker. And I thought the hard drinker was a really interesting individual. This person's got the habit badly enough. It gradually impairs them physically and mentally. It may even cause them to die a few years before their time. But here's the difference. Given sufficient reason, this person can stop or moderate. And they list some reasons in the big book. The one reason they give is being very, very sick, very ill as a result of the alcoholism. He says, have you ever been really sick? And I remember one year, I was so sick, I wasn't eating. And I dropped to like, I'm 175 pounds on average. It was like 120, 125. I was awfully thin. And I had walking pneumonia. And I was literally dying. I remember my doctor, our family doctor, looking at me in disgust and the humiliation on my parents' face. And and I I think I sobered up for about a week after mom's, you know, home cooking and, you know, some restful nights. And I'm back to it. And this is falling in love. I remember my wife begging me to stop. You know, all those frothy emotional appeals from family members. Please stop. Don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Don't you see what you're doing to your family? I wanted to stop. I really, really did. But I couldn't. Then there's the change of environment. I love the geographic cure. I was so disappointed when I moved from Toronto and moved back to Burlington, only to discover they got bars in Burlington. So that didn't work. And then, of course... They say ill health. And I remember my doctor saying, Cameron, what's going on? And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, your blood test came back. Your enzymes are through the roof. Your liver's extended. You've got liver disease. I said, well, I drink every day. He says, well, it's got to stop or you're going to die from it. I went drinking that night. You know, it makes no sense. You know, the heart... I, I really would like to be a hard drinker. Sometimes I'm, you know, I'm working with newcomers and I ask the question, are you really an alcoholic? And sometimes I get really offended with that, like as if anybody wants to be an alcoholic. Um, how dare you insist or uh, insinuate that I'm not an alcoholic, like I was interfering with their social club or something. When I talk to a real alcoholic and I go, are you really an alcoholic? You know, the first thing that hits their mind is they go, no, I don't think I am. <laughs> because they like to drink. I like to drink. I would really like to be a hard drinker, given sufficient reason I'd be able to stop. But that's not my experience. So we pretty much split that hair of uh, the hard drinker and the alcoholic. And you can really diagnose yourself as an alcoholic just by answering two questions. If when you honestly want to, you really want to stop, can you stay stopped? You know, that's the unmanageability of step one, the, the unmanageability to stay stopped. That internal unmanageability that goes on my mind, inside my mind, that prevents me from staying stopped. And then if it's, no, I can't stay stopped, or maybe, the second question is, is when you do drink, can you control the amount you take? And I never could. I, I like drinking. I like drinking till I can't drink anymore, or the booze runs out, or the money runs out. And that essentially was the step one that we took together. I love step two. Came to believe in a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. And that's really all our program offers us, 
is sanity. Like, it's nice to get families back, get job, money going again, getting better health, but these are no guarantees in our program. They may or may not come to you as part of, the, of working the program, but the one guarantee that our program does offer is sanity, being restored to sanity, that no matter what is going on in my life, I don't choose my old power. I have a different kind of power that I'm present to that restores my mind to sanity. And I'm around booze all the time. My wife keeps a bottle of rum in the kitchen, which she uses from cooking from time to time. And I don't walk by and think, God, it'd be nice to have a shot. Or, you know, I remember the old days. It, it, it could be turpentine for all I care. It's like, it's like a null equation for me. And that's the sanity that I love about this program. And as a result of that sanity, many wonderful things have occurred in my life. I did happen to, um, as a result of being able to uh, not drink anymore, reclaim a relationship with my wife. We have a great relationship now. We've been together now 19 years, 13 of which I terrorized her and the the children. My children, um, as a result of making the amends and... and, uh, being in service to them, my daughter is 22, hugs me on a daily basis and tells me she loves me. I have a great relationship with my 25-year-old son. You know, and for so many years they were terrorized by these drunken rampages where they would hide from me in the house or my wife and daughter would jump in the car and, and drive off and give me several hours to cool off and sober up. I was able to reclaim what was left of my business. I did so well in the first five years of my recovery that in one of my meditations, the, the clarity came that I should return to school. And so I enrolled in the University of Toronto. And there I'm, uh, I'm going after my undergraduate degree in, in religions and, and anthropology. And I really love what this program has done for me. And it all started with that simple beginning of step two. And step two is such a simple step. It says we need to ask ourselves but one short question. Am I willing to believe or do I believe in a power greater than myself? Well, I had no idea what this power was they were talking about. But I did know that the man who sat before me for 30 years was a hopeless alcoholic, and yet here he was sober and lucid. And I don't know what he had, but I knew he had something, and I was willing to believe, and that's what I made my starting point on. And step That's what I love about step two. It's just a simple yes or no. Do you believe or are you willing to believe in this higher power? So where do we go look for this higher power? And again, our our big book gives us clear instructions on where to look for the power. Some people think it's in the room, but it's not. It's you can't find the power in the fellowship because if you're beyond human aid, everything human is going to fail me. The power wasn't in my sponsor. When I uh, when I work with a newcomer, the first thing I say is, "I am not the power." I am going to fail you at some point. I'm not going to be there when, when you call or I'm going to say something that's going to piss you off. I am not the power. And our book says we find the great reality. We find that experience we call God or higher power or spirit deep down within us. It's not in the light bulb. I never understood how some people can make a light bulb or a doorknob or, or a chair or your higher power. It just seems so ridiculous the book tells us we look for the great reality deep down inside you know i remember uh reading uh, a new pair of glasses by chuck c and i love the little the story he tells about the fish the two fish that are chatting with each other and a fish swims by and says hey ain't the water great and the one fish says the other fish water what's water 
And they start swimming all over the ocean asking everybody, what's water, what's water? But nobody could tell them what water is. And that's what I experienced about God, which, uh, which was revealed to me later on in the program. I was literally swimming in it. That great reality is permeating through me and to me, and it's all around. But I'm so unconscious, I'm so asleep, I'm not aware of it. The other is... Um, Michelangelo's depiction of the creation of man in the Sistine Chapel. And if you look at it closely, you'll see God and man. And, you know, if you look at God, God's lying on his belly. And Michelangelo's depicting God, and he's stretching out with all his might to touch man. And what's man doing? He's on his cloud like it's a chaise lounge. And he's got his fingers slothfully hung out there. But if you look very closely, the, the distance between God and man is about an inch. And if man just made the little bit of effort to, to reach out, he could touch God. And what I think he was, what Michelangelo was trying to show in that is that's how close it really is. If with a little bit of effort we can reach out and touch that power and experience something quite extraordinarily different. In fact, I tell newcomers that until you get present to this power that we're talking about, the chances are you're going to go to your old power, which is the booze. That's my power. And it wasn't until I got present to that other kind of power that I was able to, to recover from this, this, this uh, progressive illness. Step three, you know, we make that decision to turn our will and our life over the care of God as we understand it. I didn't understand what that meant. I had no idea what that meant. I, I have no relationship with this power. So what are we talking about? But it really doesn't require any... Any more, any more exploration than just a simple decision, am I now ready to turn my will and my life over? And after 26 years of drinking and all the horror that goes with it, you know, the, the person explained to me is basically, Cameron, as CEO of your life, you've done a really dismal job. So we're firing you. That's all we're doing in step three. You're fired. We got a new director. He comes by the name of God and he's going to tell you what you got to do and things are going to work out. And uh, that was a pretty simple decision because life was pretty miserable and it wasn't working out. And everything that I tried to do or think my way through always turned out to be a mess. So I, I made that decision. And what was interesting was in this coffee shop, he reaches out and he takes my hand. And he says, we're going to pray together. We're going to take the step three together. And I found that very uncomfortable. What will people think? Me holding hands with this guy praying. You know, meanwhile, all the drunken debauchery and all the, the, the horror I put my wife through at various parties and that. I didn't really care about that. But here I'm sitting with a man praying, you know, this is something to be concerned about. And we took the step three prayer together. And then it says in our book, he says, it says, next we launched out on a vigorous course of action. Now, some people I hear interpret this as easy does it. It's not. It says vigorous action. Since you take the step three decision, what do we do? We launch out on a course of vigorous action. We seek out what blocks. As much as I want to experience God, as much as I want to grow that great reality, I can't because I'm so blocked. I'm so full of my resentments and my harms to others and my fears that I can't hear that great reality. I can't touch that great reality. I'm just full of me. You know, I met a man from Arizona, Wally P, and, and I know some of, some of the people in this room practice the uh, Back to Basics by Wally P, and I really enjoy Wally, and we chat on a, on a regular basis, and I love the way he explains the bondage of self, me in the middle and me, me, me all the way around, and that's all I can see, and that's all I could experience, so I can't experience this great reality. 
And so in order to experience that, in order to be able to touch that inner spirit, i got to clear away these blocks. And that meant making a fearless and searching moral inventory. Now, I couldn't wait to put down all my resentments because I had a long list and it was about time someone heard my grievances. And my, my friend took me through a five-column inventory. You know, the first column we list the person or the institution or the principle that I'm angry with. Column two, which is really the important column to me. This is why I'm angry. And he wouldn't hear anything from column two. We looked at column three, why am I angry? Usually it's my pocketbook or my relationships or my sexual relations or my ambitions or security that's being interfered with. But what he really wanted to know was that fourth and fifth column. The fourth column is what's my part in it? What am I doing to play a part in this? And we got down to the moral inventory. And what was interesting is we didn't do an archaeological dig on my life. We didn't do a 50-page inventory. We got down to the root causes and conditions on the really big block. We looked at the really big resentments, the really big fears, and the, uh, the sex conduct and harms. And, you know, what came out of my inventory for, for me is... Um, I really discovered what an arrogant person that I am. That's one of my big defects is arrogance. I'll dismiss entire cultures of people with my arrogance. And um, another, uh, you know, obviously self-centeredness and self-seeking. Um, dishonesty was another big defect. Slander and gossip was another big defect that came out of my inventory. I love character assassination. I was never good with my fists. But I was really good with words, and I could really assassinate with that, that strategy. And I found out, you know, just how much ugliness that I had become as a result of that. The other defect that I, I discovered was hate. I don't just get angry. I really hate. And it's an awful, awful experience. One of my biggest fears was fear of no control. And I love the way it works out, the way Bill outlines it in the big book. You know, why do I have this fear? Well, if I'm not in control, that puts me at the mercy of other people. And most people are idiots. There's that arrogance kicking in. And if there are idiots running my life, that's going to threaten everything. It's going to threaten my ambitions, my relationships, my money. It's, it's a terrible situation to be. So how does that make me behave? I get dishonest. I get arrogant. I get self-seeking. I get over-controlling. I get judgmental. I get intolerant. It's a terrible person that I become as a result of this fear. And, of course, the fifth column is, what should I have done instead? And I really love that column because it shows me a way out. If I've got arrogance, what's the way out? It's humility. If I've got resentment, what's the way out? It's forgiveness. You know, if i got hate, it's love and so on. And so we took the inventory and we worked it. Actually, we worked it out together, which was an interesting thing. He didn't say go away and come back. We worked it out right there. And we took the fourth and the fifth together. And after we had put it down on paper and we were looking at it, I realized what an offensive individual that I had become. And we looked at step six, being entirely ready to have God remove these defects. And he explained to me, he says, Cameron, you can't remove them, because if you could remove them, you would have. Right? But lack of power, that's my dilemma. I, can't, I got no power over these. I need a higher power to remove them. And so... He says, you're the problem. We need, we need a higher power to remove them. And are you ready? And I, I, because we've so thoroughly done the fifth together, I, I really got on that innermost self what an offensive individual I had become. And so I was ready. 
Once again, he took my hand in the coffee shop, and there was more praying, and we did that step seven prayer together. But he, he showed me how to personalize the prayer, and I use the prayer every night in my step 11 evening meditation. That's how I close my evening. And when I get to that part where I ask God to remove the defects, I get very specific with God. I said, these are the defects I need you to remove. And I, and I list them, and I stay present to what it is that's keeping me blocked from that sunlight of the Spirit. And when it says, grant me the strength, that's my column five again. Grant me these strengths. Grant me forgiveness. Grant me humility. Grant me trust. Grant me unselfishness and so on. And it becomes a a personal commune with, with my idea of what the higher power is. As a result of doing the, the inventory, of course, we have a list of who I need to make amends to. And my family was, was big on the list. And certain business partners. And making, I don't like making amends because it means admitting that I'm wrong. It doesn't mean I'm sorry because some things I've done I'm not sorry for. But I was wrong. And I made mistakes. And they were awful mistakes. And I had to clean up my side of the street. And I'll share one amend with you. I I had a business partner. And uh, we had a falling out many years ago. And as a result of that falling out, I became extremely resentful. And using one of my character defects, I slandered her to no end. In fact, when the Internet came along, I started publishing documents about her and her company. And they were awful documents. And they really harmed her personally and financially. And for many years, she tried to get a hold of me to try and get me to stop. And that made it even more delightful. But when I did the inventory and I realized what a what a an ugly individual that I become and, and the necessity of cleaning this up because I did not want to go back to that world of, of drinking. Um, I had, I had to make, I had to make the amend and I didn't want to make the amend. I had to really pray for the willingness, but the willingness came. And the first thing I did was I removed all these offensive documents so that when you do a, a Google search for this woman, you can't find these documents anymore. And then I, then I went to her and I approached her and I started to explain all the things that I had done and why I was wrong. And I kept it entirely about me, as much as I could probably justify why she deserved it. I kept it about me. And then at the end of it, and I always like asking this question when I'm doing an amend, because if you really want to know how to make the amend, just ask the person you harmed. They'll tell you how to make the amend. And that's the question I said is, what can I do? What more can I do to make this right? And this woman replied to me, she says, Cameron, all I want you to do is keep the door to our friendship open. Now, I was not prepared for what happened, but I literally, I buckled. My knees buckled underneath me and I fell. It was such a huge piece of resentment that had been removed from my being as a result of making this step. And what's really great about this program is when we make the amends and we remove these blocks and that we create room for that spirit to grow, the spirit grows. And that's what happened. The spirit grew within me and I lost my footing. It was so it was so intense. And what's really wonderful about this program is I continue to walk with that spirit inside me to this very day. It never left. That's the really wonderful thing about making amends. You know, as much as I worked, you know, steps one through nine as a vehicle to this thing we call God. Like I said, with the recipe, if you practice the recipe as it's outlined in the big book, you are going to have a spiritual experience. That's what the, that's what the recipe in the book's designed for. It's to ha- have you go through this process and awaken to this, this spirit. 
Now, as much as one might become awake to the spirit as a result of practicing one through nine, it is possible to go back to sleep. And what keeps us awake and what kept me awake was working the disciplines of steps 10, 11, and 12. Step 10, I do a daily inventory. I have a a tick list where I go through my liabilities and my assets for the day and stay present and awake to where I'm at. I use uh, my my prayer meditation daily. I always open my day with with the morning meditation of step 3, and I turn my will over to God. And when I'm finished talking to God, and that's what I love about step 11, it says it suggests prayer and meditation. Prayer is talking to God. And meditation is listening to God. Now, I always talk to God, but listening to God, which I think is the more important part, was something I had to really work towards. But what I do in my morning meditation is when I say, may I do thy will always, I always turn it back to God and I say, God, what is thy will for me today? And then I listen. And for the most part, it's usually the column five of what I need to bring into my day, into those relationships that I have throughout my day, to bring in the humility and the forgiveness and the unselfishness and the love and the trust and the acceptance. Step 12, I love step 12. You know, step 12 says practical experience shows that nothing so much ensures immunity against drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. I've worked with a lot of alcoholics over the past four years, uh, well over 300. I keep track of everyone I work with. 50%. 52% of them are sober. I always keep track, you know, who's sober, who isn't. And um, 52% of them are sober today as a result of working this program. And that's what our book says. 50% will sober up at once. And another 25 will sober up after a few relapses. And the other 25 will actually show improvement if they keep coming back. Not to the meeting, but to working the steps. They'll actually show improvement. And I've seen that, that too. I'm a big believer in working with others. I really believe it's the, the missing link in a lot of the, a lot of the program out there. I, I, I don't think being a good Samaritan every now and then and bringing a suffering fellow to a meeting is enough. At least it wasn't enough for me. Uh, I work with uh, an alcoholic on a daily basis. I, I've worked with alcoholics uh, face-to-face as well as over the phone. I've worked with them throughout the United States and England. Um, I remember talking to a friend of mine in Hamilton. Her name's Tunisia. And Tunisia works with a lot of street-level alcoholics in Hamilton. And uh, I called her up one day because I'm always trying to get a better result, like as if I'm doing, if I, actually, I'm in, in control here. And I asked her, I said, Tunisia, what kind of results are you getting working with alcoholics? And she said, I get 100% success. And I was really floored by that. And I said, how is that possible? And she said, well, I'm still sober. Now, that's the best kept secret in the fellowship. I, I really don't know whether the person I'm working with is going to sober up because that's between them and God. But through it all, I've remained sober. And that's a miracle in my life because for 26 years, all I did was think about how to get high, how to drink, stay drunk. And now here I am being able to practice abstinence. That's really the miracle of this program, working with others. Um, There are lots of really, I think, fabulous uh, ways of working with others. Uh, As I said earlier, I love the the back-to-basics approach. 
I do a workshop at the end of every month where um, we'll take a room full of alcoholics and we'll we'll outline the whole program of action over four hours. We don't do it over four one-hour periods. We just do it all in four four hours, right from start to beginning. We just outline the whole program. And then we ask at the end of it, do you want to be in this deal? And it really gives the newcomer an idea. What What is this 12-step program all about? Like I said, nothing ensures immunity against drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when all other activities fail. So here's this poor man... This poor alcoholic, he's stuck in a hole. He can't get out of it. The doctors can't help him. The counselors can't help him. Gorski's trigger list isn't working for him. Business people can't help him. This guy is, is, is really in, a, in an awful way. And a recovered alcoholic is strolling by and he hears the alcoholic crying out for help and he jumps into the hole with him. And the alcoholic turns to him and says, what would you do that for? Now we're both stuck in this hole. But the recovered alcoholic turns to the, the man and he says with a wink in his eye, It's okay, brother. I've been here before. I know the way out. Are you looking for a way out? A way out for more experience, strength, and hope. To walk hand in hand with the sunlight of the Spirit. To be an intelligent agent. A spearhead of God's ever-advancing creation. I'm for that. How about you? Thank you, folks.